Hello, and welcome to Control Escape, a podcast dedicated to showcasing the entire menu of top Africans in all areas of technology, with the aim of encouraging and motivating other Africans venturing into the growing landscape. Join me on this epic journey of discovery, adventure, and first-hand experience. Welcome everyone to another episode on the Jenny series here on Control Escape. We are privileged to have today our second woman. She's in the person of Ifia Owusu-Fofie. She's the president and executive director for Coders Who Travel. This is going to be an interesting episode because when I put her profile up, I got things like long overdue, can't wait, exciting. So I'm very excited today to talk to Ifia. Ifia, welcome to Control Escape. Oh, thank you. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great other than getting over a little cold. And so so just heads up, there's some hints of (laughs) uh, other stuff in my voice. That's because of that. Don't worry, it's, it's going to add some spice. It's going to add some spice to your to your voice. So I'm sure I'm sure it will not be that noticeable. <laughs> thank you for your reassurance. Yeah, thank you again. When I connected with Equia, who was uh, a guest on on the on the podcast, who mentioned that you know what you should talk to Efia. I was like, hmm, who's Efia? And she gave me you know a gist of who you you are what you're doing and all that I felt like well that's interesting because we want to balance the male female ratio on the program so it's amazing and interesting to have you on it on the podcast and I know that is going to get a lot of traction and travel a long way with what you're doing yeah thanks for you know sharing that Kri and I have been working in overlapping areas with women who code Accra and coders who travel. So, uh, you know, I thought it was a great opportunity to to come on the show, particularly because I respect her recommendation. And because she had referred you, I thought I would I would take that into consideration. And, and here we are today. Yeah, that's, that's really great of you. Before we start, I know there is a woman who code chapter here in the U.S., so when Ikria mentioned a oh, woman who called Ghana, I was like, wow, that's interesting. Would you want to tell us a bit of how it came to be and why? Certainly. I was working for a think tank sometime in June 2014. One of the data scientists, I was also a senior programming at that same place. One of the data scientists sent out an email, you know, the usual co-worker, there's a meetup happening at Microsoft. It's a data science BC event. And so in order to go to that event, I had to sign up on meetup. And at that time, meetup was, the meetup app was not too popular. So I was like, what is this meetup? So I did that to RSVP, went to that event, came home. And in that evening, I got, you know, the usual notification or was it like a recommendation Mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. hey, there's another group called Women Who Code. Would you like to join? I was like, I am a woman who code because I, you know, I was primarily programming in SAS, uh, which is my favorite programming language. Mm. And I just resonated with the women who code ideas. So I found time to check out the event, you know, when I could probably in the next two weeks. And I, I really remember that day. I walked into the Martin Luther King Jr. Library and I found about seven women huddled together teaching themselves. I believe it was Java that day. Mm. I remember when I was 
about leaving, I just had the thought that I really wished I had something like that when I was in Ghana, pursuing mm. computer science at the University of Ghana, along with mm. statistics. So, so that that thought just wouldn't leave me. That man, I really wish I had some. We had something like that. So one thing led to another, and uh, actually, the thought didn't leave me for about two, three months. After that, I sent a simple message to their contact form on their website, and the person that responded was uh, someone called Neil Brown, who was mm. serving as their chief of staff, and she. It just turned out that she had visited Ghana to do. The one-year exchange program oh, had been okay. posted by a family who used to attend the same church that I was attended in Ghana called Legon International Church. <laughs> and <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. Yeah, I wasn't expecting yeah. that. So I went from being reserved, if you're curious, just checking things out, to by the time I finished the conversation with her, I was like, oh my gosh, she's so pumped up to take this to Ghana. So that really helped. So that's how I found out about Women Who. But as the questions unfolding, I can share more about how that conversation will then lead to other things. And finally, to when we would have uh, an Accra chapter of Women Mm -hmm. Who Code in late 2015, when I would visit Ghana after some seven years in the United States just to really do this. So we will get to that. Amazing. Interesting. Definitely, I'm going to ask you how that, you know, how that went. This was was just, you know, (laughs) to get the ball rolling and to warm up to what's ahead of us. (laughs) Anyway, we want to know now, who is this bubbly and, you know, all up for it? Who is Efio Usufufi? Tell us about yourself. So I I don't know how you you already get that I'm bubbly because people get <laughs> do keep that comment. So I'm amazed you're able to pick it up. You know, having just been in, interacting with you on the phone so far. Mm-hmm. So I would say growing up, I've always been a uh, bubbly, but I am also I'm realizing that uh, I'm quite bold. Uh, so <laughs> like. When I was growing up, I really had a lot of male cousins. The the cousins who were females were older or way younger. So I had to be playing with my male cousins. And um, I guess that helped. I wasn't really asking myself a lot of questions about whether I can play, you know, table tennis or I can play soccer or I can play, you know, lawn tennis. It was more like we were just playing. And so... I said that because I do believe that it is sort of laid the foundation for me not to be too afraid to pursue, let's say, the analytical subjects in school or math, you know, and all that, because wherever I was male dominated, it was more like I'm kind of used to it because of my male cousins. Yeah. <laughs> so as I would grow up, that's when I realized that, oh, women, or oh, I should say maybe some women will decide that this was more suitable for a woman. You know, it, it was later, maybe I would say, you know, maybe during boarding school, that I started being conscious of the fact. And mm. also, you know, particularly some of my mother's friends were starting to worry that I've crossed puberty. And so, yeah. you know, I should, boys. so kind of that's how I guess bubbly and, you know, daring and just going after what I want, right? Mm. I think I will give some of the credit to my new cousin. Okay. I know, you know, growing up, there's a lot of challenges and 
be especially for the women who mingle you know with guys they're like you're getting too close to the men that kind of thing growing up so <laughs> and you know, I share puberty because by the time a woman is at puberty, there's more at stake. Yeah. But worry yeah. they can't even get pregnant, mm-hmm. you know, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so uh we had to go through that metamorphosis as well, you know, yeah. and all that. I think my dad had a great part. You know, my mom was great, you know, growing up raising me, you know, allow me to play with my male cousins. But at some point my mom decided that it would be good for her to relocate to the US. And so mm. Uh, for me, that was about time to uh, move in with my dad. And so my dad is also like strict African dad, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that yeah. helped me shape up, you know, transition from just being the, the regular guy to understanding more of what, you know, maybe a woman role is supposed to be in the Ghanaian context. And so you know, that's a bit about that. Interesting. So at what point, you know, you've talked about mingling with your male cousins, you're just playing around and all that. At what point did you have your first contact with technology? When was it? When was that point where you're like, this is what I want to do? Did you have any relatives or family already doing things in technology? Oh, I think um, so. I I was fortunate. Uh, My mom and I moved to join her bigger sister who was married to an architect slash part-time lecturer mm. at the KN University campus. And so, you know, just being raised on a university campus, you yeah. know, affords me so much opportunity to be in a very learned uh, environment. Mm. But for us, I think, again, back to my male cousins, they were playing Nintendo and Sega oh. at a very early age. And all that was my way of interacting with technology. Mm. I remember when... Uh, Mr. Mensa, which is their dad's name, would bring in maybe a very first computer back home when we're probably in class five. Mm. You know, I remember he would tell us that that was when, when you are shutting off the computer, the computer <laughs> says that it's about to shut off or something. Yeah, like that, yeah, right? yeah. And if you didn't follow that, then it means when you were starting out, the person could figure it out. Yeah. I actually remember one time my auntie went somewhere, she was like, Nobody should touch Mr. Mensa's computer. (laughs) (laughs) We actually touched it. And when she came, she knew that we had touched it. But you asked the house helps, and the house helps would say, no, they didn't touch Touch it. it, But they knew. (laughs) (laughs) It was trouble for the little kids. So, you know, we always have to mischief. And so I think that's about my first encounter with technology. The Mm. Nintendo games and the, you know, Sega with Mario Brothers or um, yeah. uh, Sonic, Sonic, Sonic yeah. Uh, whatever. Hedgehog, yeah. So, yeah, you know, that, that's, I would say that would be my first encounter. It's coming out that most of the people I have interviewed, with the exception of uh, one or two of them, that really didn't have any connection with tech, either started at, you know, primary four or primary five, thereabout. It feels like that was a time when. For some of us who were really interested in, in it, that was just a time for us to, you know, get into it. That's amazing. You mentioned that you went to University of Ghana, Legon. That's where you did your computer science. What was what was right. that like? Well, so, um, you know, there's always that pressure for most people that, you know, do well or have strong grades through boarding school 
to do, you know, medicine, you know. Mm, so there was that yeah. pressure for me, particularly my grandmother's younger brother is a medical doctor. So she already was telling me that far back when, and my mom was also on it. Uh, but fortunately, now I say fortunately, my dad had always worked in financial services mm. and he's also like a, he also went to Lagon, you know, and all that. So he was like, the doctor is great, but you know, you really have to have like a calling for it. Yeah. And not just that, he had some friends who had become medical doctors that were actually now pursuing an MBA, which he also, you know, had a degree in. And so my dad was not having it. And so uh, it was more like dad was like, no, Mephia, you know, he calls me Mephia. Mephia is very good at math. And <laughs> I see her biology grades. They are not as great as her math grades. So why do we want her to become a doctor? You know, yeah. so it was more like, okay, you have to follow my marching orders. One week into University of Ghana, my dad is now backpedaling. He takes me to lunch and he's like, I know I did this, but Charlie, I can still, you know, connect you to my lecturer friends and we can switch this thing up. Are you really sure you want this? But by that time, I've had like a week of math lectures and computer mm. science. So I was like, guys, okay, it's okay. I mean, yeah. <laughs> this was the right decision. You know, I like my classes. Yeah. You know, so that's how Legon started and yeah. it was very challenging mm. you know in the first two years uh but we found our footing and uh ultimately we'll double major in the computer science and statistics because mm. you know the computer science uh department and not just that they they had underfunded labs so yeah. we didn't really have yeah. a lot of computers in there to be practicing a lot and yeah so I just thought statistics would be a good addition to it. Yeah, I can actually relate to that because I, I also did the same program. Which year were you in Legon? Uh, 2003 through to 2007. Okay, I was in Legon as well. And I can relate to it, as you're saying, because then you couldn't actually do a single major. You had to do a double major. And I think the computer science department was actually um, parasiting on the mathematics department. So it was very mathematical and very statistical. So I can I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> aside, aside the underfunded labs, what were the other challenges you faced? In Legon. Oh, Legon. I think it was also very theoretical emphasis. And I don't mm. know whether it's because the labs maybe were underfunded. Given that general analysis, even with statistics, I remember pursuing statistics and formulas like probability distribution functions. We had to memorize them, you yeah. know, stuff like normal distribution and gamma functions. Mm. And I remember the TI calculators that it's so prevalent <laughs> yeah. in US classes were banned, you yeah. know, like yeah. <laughs> you yeah. couldn't use them. Yeah. And so you had that arduous tax of remembering these formulas in addition to just being, you know, manually calculating things for a very long, long time, time. Mm. you know. And so I think initially I struggled with that because I've always been an applied person, you know. I'm someone who likes visualizing things and maybe writing stuff out more. And I also enjoy convenience you know what yeah, everybody does so uh that was uh hard for me to assimilate and not just me you know a lot of folks had a famous name called bermuda you mm -hmm. know named after bermuda so that obviously had a connotation with how many great minds had 
come yeah. through the department, but yeah. because of the sheer challenge of some of these rudimentary tasks, some had had to defect and gone to uh, other departments. And yeah. so I think in general, just theoretically being emphatic on formless and, you know, manual calculation could have been better. Yeah, we share we share in those struggles. So you finished with Legon. At what point did you transition to the US? So after Legon, I became a teaching assistant. Actually founded by working with the head of department during her research conference at Naguchi. So she really liked me and it made it easier for me to get that. So I did the teaching assistantship and about the time I think after leaving, my auntie had in a human resources consultancy firm. She had done some KPNG work. And I believe you, United Nations work in Ghana, and she was testing out being an entrepreneur at that time. And so she, she had me do some questionnaires and, you know, about compensation, and I analyzed it. So I did that for her for about four to five months. About that time, I decided to join my mother. And my mother would have me attend the American Statistical Association Conference okay. in late 2007 to really decide if I because I was still confused. I was like, yeah. am I going to do computer science or statistics? statistics you know? yeah. But that conference really solidified that I, I wanted to be in more in statistics at that point. Interesting. So I'm guessing there were little seeds that were sown because your father was in finance, you know, that piqued your interest in doing statistics because of his financial data and all that. And, you know, your mom as well with that influence really pushed you towards statistics. Is that the reason why you like programming in SAS? <laughs> Uh, the, so the thing is, my dad actually wanted me to do an MBA, and so oh. but I did not agree with him on that. So <laughs> I pursuing the masters of science in statistics, you know, was really my own decision. Okay. So now with finding my way in SAS and programming, you know, in the U.S., even in your statistics, and I actually was doing alongside uh, operations research because uh, they had a dual masters program in. I've always been ambitious, so I took a shot at there. Both programs, really, you can't. I just contrast it with the Ghana one where calculators are banned and you have to memorize the humongous formulas. Here, you're you're allowed to do a cheat sheet of all the functions and you're allowed to do a bringing, you know, a Texas Instrument TI for short calculator to... Really, that's, it has some programming functions that you can pre-use to calculate some stuff quickly like means and standard deviations. Mm. So in the U.S., I was shocked the amount of programming <laughs> I had to do. Uh, in my first semester in graduate school, I was like, wow. <laughs> like, I thought I was mm-hmm. running from programming. Yeah. But here it was squarely, you know, this was statistical analysis kind of programming and operations research mm. kind of programming with more back-end stuff, algorithms, mm. uh, simulations, and stuff like that. So I was in trouble. I could tell I was in trouble. I was a TA again uh, for the Department of Statistics at George Mason University, and I could tell that my American counterparts will finish the assignments relatively quicker than I mm. was doing. You know, when I was pursuing statistics in Ghana, I remember like a regression analysis class. You have to give all the justification, even if you are coming to use this formula or why R squared, you have mm-hmm. to define R squared before you use it. You that use was the it, approach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was how I was still 
same thing. But like, yeah, it wasn't like that. If mm. you know what R squared is, you can just say R squared equal to when you even plug the numbers. You don't need to define it in the sum of square errors or anything like that. So, yeah. so when I started talking with them, Petra and Caitlin, Samitian girl, I realized that I was doing way, way too much on what my assignment was mm, requiring. Yeah. And that was why I was spending so much time doing my assignment. In addition to having a learning curve for programming at that point, because I sort of was losing interest by the time I was finishing Legon in programming. And so I had to do a reset. So yeah. I found out they were doing programming classes and I signed up for three SAS programming classes and it was one of the best decisions I ever made mm. because the lecturer had been programming in SAS since the 1970s, which wow. is about the time <laughs> SAS itself began. Yeah. So like I got the real deal, you know, with Dr. Linda Davis. I just want to give her a shout out. Yeah. <laughs> She really was awesome. She taught me SAS programming and the, uh, the second installment was statistical graphics. And then we did SAS macros, just an ability if you are doing too many repetitive things, uh, how to set up macros to really automate everything, which was amazing. And from then on, it also paved the way for me to, you know, really, it's one of the highlights of my career to mm. be like, say, six Asians during oh. an interview. <laughs> Five guys and uh, one woman while vying for this research and development research will have to get her on. Yeah. I did not think I would qualify when I met them. them yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> I'll say thanks be to God. You know, mm-hmm. we, we mm-hmm. edged over them. Yeah. So it was just a good position to get at that point. It really, really paid off uh, when it comes to programming, what programming can do for one's career. Yeah, that's interesting. I missed all the challenge. Aside the TI calculator that was banned, was forbidding, was a taboo mm-hmm. in the universities or in the educational system in Ghana that you realized that in the US was something that was allowed. Apart from that shock, were there other mm-hmm. cultural challenges or cultural differences that really got to you when you came to the United States? Oh, yes. I actually did not know. I would say it was my blind spot for a very long time. Mm. I found out when at George Mason, they had a career services division. And about the time when I was looking for that internship, I decided that I would attend a simulated interview series. It was Mm -hmm. from people that were coming in, I believe, from Target or Walmart. And they were just there to just help students come and practice uh, interviewing. And it it could have knows that I really championed that even through women who could craft and even with coders who travel because I was amazed so basically I went there they did an interview of me took my resume and then the feedback was like look first thing you don't even maintain eye contact mm, <laughs> yeah you know that is something that was called <laughs> I don't know if guys really look at themselves each other in the eyes when they are speaking <laughs> so I didn't know that they cared about that that you look them in the eye when you are to them was a sign of trust and a sign of honesty Mm -hmm. and I was completely missing that and then the second feedback was how to give like a firm handshake 
at the end of the day. Yeah. And I don't know for some reason mine was weak, and so they shared that. <laughs> and then um, they also gave feedback that for some reason all my examples were schools, right? Mm. So I was always relying on school projects to answer all the questions that they were getting across to me instead of talking about some of the activities that I did whilst, let's say, I was a teaching assistant. Yeah. And you know, when I moved to the U.S., I had to work at a Marriott Hotel. It was really a franchise one, okay. uh, being managed by Baywood Hotels. But uh, I did guest services, and later on, the manager, when he realized that, oh, I have a college degree, and you know, I'm good with math, he put me in what they call the night audit, which is mm-hmm. like the graveyard shift. Yeah. You know, so they were like, they expected us, they expected me to draw examples from all these experiences that I've had, and you know, during Lagos, we used to do a lot of, you know, bugger to UK <laughs> to do any work. So yeah. they're like, all those experiences, yeah. you you'll be able to draw scenarios from all these spheres of your life so that your interview answers does not become quote-unquote boring. boring. So, so I was coming across as a bookworm in my answers when in real life, my life had touched on different experiences and, mm. and they thought that was not coming through. And so I, I thought that was very powerful. But the chief thing that I think America does so well is confidence. And I yeah. think I'm still on that journey in Ghana and out there, say, maybe particularly even for women, if you are too confident, it is not viewed well. So even when you know something or you want to share something, sometimes maybe you are concerned what people might think if you were to share all that you know Uh, but the U.S. it's amazing they really thrive on confidence you know like it's like the foundation for most people's successes in grad school people do presentations that you know for lack of you don't get it but the confidence that they used to present it Mm -hmm. and I remember during my presentations in grad school I always thought if you ask louder you know we couldn't hear you at the back we are taught not confident but confident sells and confident really determines paychecks in America so um, I think that would be something that we can work on if you're a young up-and-coming Ghanaian it's okay to be confident because that would ultimately hurt you in your career. Yeah, amazing, interesting. So you mentioned Marriott, you mentioned your auntie's HR job, you know, you've done different things at TE and all that. What was your first gig relating to technology? What was that first one? I would say the progressive one was the first real solid internship. Even though it was an intern, mm. they didn't treat me like an intern. intern. They really had mm. serious problems that like burning projects mm. that it's just sometimes you can't free up your regular employees to do it. And uh, the manager was a hot shot from Kellogg, you know, I believe mm. he may have had an idealistic degree too. And he was like a product manager three and he had just heard that the, their competitor was using third party information yeah. to get an edge mm. and he wanted results like quick. So he thought I'm going to get a very strong technical intern to clear the backlog during the three years. Three, three and a half months. So like I said, we were seven for the interview. And yeah. when I made it, when I came, my work was really cut. Just mine the data to find a variable that was predicting the right 
premiums because mm -hmm. what happens is insurance companies want to know the right information about the people they are providing coverage to. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes people maybe overstate or understate stuff, you know, and they want to make sure it's right. So this third party information was coming through, I guess, the U.S. Department of Transportation oh, okay. and uh, some uh, other resources. So we were just to mind that. And so uh, as an intern, I got guidance, but it was a lot of work creating uh, predictive models and mining data with Excel charts and stuff like that. So I did four projects, even though I was an intern. I remember my some other interns were having fun. And, mm. you know, all my internship, I was always working. Thinking, I was working yeah. more than 10 hours straight, you know. And uh, But it was good because it broke me into corporate America and you know, based on one of the referrals, I will eventually the following semester get this job at Mathematica Policy Research. Hmm. And so that's where they gave me, the, they actually gave me a senior programmer analyst okay. role just because of the referral, because they were like, you should have come in a step lower, but yeah. the recommendation was really good. good so, yeah. so that's how I, I got, I was able to break into the CEO in, <laughs> in corporate America here. Wow, very dedicated, ambitious, and very exciting. So fast forward, currently, you are the president and executive director for Coders Who Travel and still working with Womenhood Code. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's uh, like, you know, picking up with where we left off. Mm -hmm. After that exciting call with uh, Neil Brown, former chief of staff, Neil actually decided to leave Women Who Could at that point. And then another person came for about one, six weeks and also left. And then I had a new person. She was just trying to do a good job. You know, she was new to their role, right? Yeah. But it was clear she didn't have much exposure to the African story and our way of life. And so she wondered if the model will work in, mm. you know, in, our, in our landscape. And so she was trying to caution me with that. Mm. But I was overly excited. I was now like ready to come because yeah. I'd already interviewed about 13 women through former classmates, mm. contacts and mm. LinkedIn and Facebook. And I got reconnected with Ghanaian women. And sometimes we come here, we, we try to assimilate so much, yeah, but then we, we sort of forget yeah. who we are and the stuff that we had. Exactly. And so when I talked to them, I was like, oh, wow. Even if I'd just stayed in Ghana, I'll come across as like a hot shot. So I was really pumped up to just go. So we talked through that. And finally, she gave me the mandate to come. And so I traveled to Ghana. We, and a lot of people say, why did you have to travel? Why didn't you guys do remote? The simple question is internet challenges, you know, and that's yeah. also another segment on its own. But anyway, so I went there and about eight of us, we did the best that we can. Uh, we launched seven maiden events. And then before I was going to Ghana, I attended some conferences to get the training because, you know, Women Who Code is now a little bigger. But at that time, you know, Women Who Code was founded in, I believe, 2013. So it was just a two-year company at that time. And mm. so it, they didn't really have all the resources for you to train how to give motivational speaking and you know run workshops like that most of those experiences came from my work with Mathematica mm. and attending conferences to hear how people do this and so when I could I cry was launched but immediately 
we've had challenges that were peculiar to our culture. Mm-hmm. Like the internet is issue, is an issue. You know, you guys yeah. pay like three times for half the speed of the internet compared mm-hmm. to what we enjoy 24-7. And even with that, they are talking about 10 hours of internet usage, you know, at the best in the best case scenario Jesus, yeah. a day. There's also another issue of commuting distances. Yeah. Even though Accra yeah. might seem small compared to the US, let's say if you are in like Alexandria, city of Alexandria, just commuting between it is difficult. Collecting data and people were traveling anywhere from sometimes even one and a half hours to 2.5 hours just to attend programs. And then uh, Women Who Code has an assumption that when you are a director as I am for that, you are supposed to get sponsorship for light snacks, you know, like pizza mm-hmm. and drinks yeah. or you know, samosas and other finger foods, internet and space are uh, consistently on a monthly basis uh, for about 10 to 15 women. How realistic is that in God? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's challenging. No, it's very so, right? And so I was running, or we were running into the situation where directors based in, let's say, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Berlin, Germany, Canada, and elsewhere, Australia and London and others, it was a good sell. Because when you approach a company and you say that this is about a woman, this will make you look good for your diversity stuff in terms of your public relations. Mm. And we are going to tweet about you and yeah. blog about, you know, how much you are helping. Yeah. They easily win these sponsorship, but that has not been the case for our craft. Mm. So it became more like, our like, I'm the person here and I'm giving back to these women as much as I could. Uh, but then my friends and former co-workers who were working with me started advising me that instead of doing it personally, there's a way we can do it through an organization. If we we, we want to, let's say, close the gap for, let's say, women who could have craft. Yeah. Or we want to uh, even replicate the whole story because a lot of them were really touched by the fact that I packed up left everything just to go Mm. and do this with a group of women that I was connected to. So those challenges was what led us to, um, you know, women um, coders who travel, Mm. which has a vision to inspire and advance the careers of professional coders in the less developed regions of the world. That's how coders who travel came into the picture. And we we just crossed two years. Uh, I founded it while working at Deloitte & Touche as a risk analytics slash data analytics consultant in their advisory rank. Very pressured job. Yeah, (laughs) I I can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Made good contacts, but I felt that I wanted, I didn't want to not ever take a full-time shot at coders who travel. So I never discovered its potential. So I've been doing it for about a year now full-time. And oh. so fully on this entrepreneurial journey, you know, learning along the way. But uh, we've done workshops, we've done lunch and learns, we've done two uh, fundraiser events. It could have gone well, but it's okay. We are learning. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We have already hosted programs. Kua has been one of our beneficiaries, like we use them as pilots how does it feel if you want mm-hmm. to go somewhere mm-hmm. let's say in Ghana from Accra to Kumasi to teach people but your job is stressing you out yeah. you can't really free up time will a plane take it make, make a difference you know yeah. and the answer is yes, yes. they get yeah. excited yeah <laughs> and so uh being able to pilot that was really great you know and we've also done focus group discussions mm. where we just 
you don't want to run the, into a situation with women who could have crab where what works in US is automatically assumed that it will work, work in yeah. Africa because we know it doesn't work because people are just different over there. We have taken the approach of really taking time to listen. And so we have a lot of videos and photos that we've captured mm. just listening to first students and professionals, what their needs are. And then we also ramped it up to C-suite executives mm-hmm. where we had this great man who used to chair the Institute of Chartered Accountants, you know, Mr. Fred Moore. And we are taking the action to faculty. Uh, maybe sometime mm-hmm. in late April, where they also get to hear the aside, because it sounds like this is the perspective or our experiences. Believe you me, they also have their own demons yeah, <laughs> that they are yeah. slaying mm-hmm. to do with what they can in the context that they find themselves. Example is high student lecturer ratios, like teaching 100 to even 500 students. I mean, you might want to be hands-on, but there's only so much that you, you can, can do. Yeah. And so we are taking the action to them and hopefully we get them on videos, really just pouring their heart. What is it that is blocking them? What are their barriers? And uh, we can hopefully listen to all of that and then use that to power the Coders Who Travel Summit, which is which I touched on briefly that it's an early idea that we would like to have, you know, have a summit where some programmers can travel from developed regions to the United States and um, have to experience some of the best facilities. Uh, we have early thoughts of maybe talking with some partners, but I don't want to mention their names when it's not really <laughs> it's still, solidified. Yeah, it's not solidified. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But those are early thoughts. That's amazing. And congratulations on the anniversary. It's a strong feat you've achieved because it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of dedication to say that, uh, you know, I want to do this all out despite all the struggles and stress, you know, which brings me to the next question I want to ask you. You're doing all these things, you know, you're someone to say you're all over the place with, you know, women who code, women who code as who travel and all this. How are you able to balance this with your social life? <laughs> oh, I think, you know, there's more that I could do with my social life. I think, I personally think I rely too much on social media you know mm, um, mm. and it's something that I um it's actually like in my personal development to actively make sure that I'm contacting more people in real life I mean I have people that I chat to but I was critiquing myself recently and I realized that you know maybe a lot of my friendships could do well with me being proactive calling them more mm. and finding them out I've always been the person that will just want to hang out like in my room and stuff like that <laughs> but sometimes you have to be proactive too so people don't feel like you're only calling them when you need something which is never the case you know I'm always checking up on my friends on Facebook when I miss them but we don't have to have let social media replace good old mm. call someone and yeah. talk to them and those things. And so that's something that we could work on. Uh, for other social media, I mean, in terms of other social life, I'm a big, church is a big part of my life. 
I sing in the choir. I mm. I have a mentor who used to be a missionary, and so sometimes she takes me to evangelism. Recently, mm, yeah. I've never done it before. I was so so scared, but mm. not so bad. <laughs> so maybe I'll say that is once a month. Choir, you know, maybe every week at at minimum to me. Friends having lunches or dinners is great. Mm. I'm also trying to leverage my passion for tennis and you know maybe biking so mm. that maybe I can get more better in shape you know and all that because <laughs> that all helps with you know your mental health exercising and doing things that you love so uh those are a bit and then um I found a way to make make things enjoyable like you're leading an organization like uh Kodos and Travel your network will take you to the next level so yeah. I have to attend conferences, you know, and, and we have to make it part of the work, like enjoyable. Yeah. And then uh, with, let's say, the women who code, I'm actively looking for people so that my work will reduce. Mm. Like, I'm actively looking at how I can appoint three new co-directors okay. so that my work can significantly reduce and I can concentrate on closing the gap for them as a network so mm. I can, Coders Who Travel can help them meet their unique challenges and also concentrate on uh, you know, the grander vision to ease barriers and constraints in the path of programmers, want, programmers wanting to travel and deliver project-based knowledge, make sure that we do pair programming mm-hmm. with great mentors yeah. who are based in the U.S. and other places, and um, and finally developing sort of like a, an international community of, you know, programmers who just support each other. We have a campaign that we are developing called Adopt a Programmer. Really want the concepts of adopter programmer to be mm. so cool, like adopt yeah. an orphan. We may yeah. not get there yeah. ever, right? <laughs> but we can do our best. It's part of a big vision for most people I know in tech who are trying to, you know, make the same change back home. So it it's gonna be baby steps for now, but eventually I believe we're gonna we're gonna get there. So tell us how has technology changed or influenced your life oh i think it's it's, it's giving me a career it's, it brings convenience it allows me Ghanaian, american living in the u.s i'm able to connect with all of my friends easily mm. you know keep in touch with relatives and families you know so it's really you know made is we've enjoyed the games from childhood yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's really been a big part of my life. Uh, but as we move on, you know, how we also manage technology so it doesn't also take over our lives. lives yeah. I'm also uh, really being a big champion of that. Making sure you get the right sleep and mm-hmm. the rest mm-hmm. you need. You know, like if you are sleeping, you know, it might be good to put your phone away and not be disturbed <laughs> by notifications. Yeah. You know, your sleep is also very important because it affects your productivity. Mm. If you don't sleep well, what you are supposed to achieve in a short number of hours can drag on for two days, you know. Mm. And so yeah. we need to, um, I love technology. But I also think we should use it very responsibly. We have to be very responsible in using it. So in all this, what inspires you to do what you do? Anything to do to strive to do more? Oh my God. I, I can't even begin to uh 
pinpointed. I think I've always been great. I think if you will talk about gift, I've always been someone who is an, an encourager, you know, and what comes with that is an ability to have empathy for what mm. people are going through. Yeah. And so uh, I'm not saying people don't know every person is, isn't like that. But for me, I really do feel it when someone describes their situation is like, I can put myself in their shoes. So, you know, if someone wants to program and they don't have a laptop and mm. I hear that, that's a concern for me, mm. you know, and because I want to do something about it, then I do so in my own small way to make sure that I can help that person. And the amazing thing that happens is when you try to help someone get what they are seeking for, it, it just somehow works out that you also become very uh, fulfilled in the process because it's really rewarding when for me I know that after let's say helping someone prepare for interviews makes them Mm. get a job instead of being at home Mm -hmm. that's very very rewarding for me but um the more this matures you know because this has grown from a hobby to what Mm. now a full-time and not just that potentially exploring how this will be sustainable for the long years you know with something that's a hobby you can do it one time mm. and enjoy it and then go back and do everything but when this becomes your work you need a stronger tool and for me i'm a christian and you know in those times when there are challenges and you know maybe i'm down because some of the challenges that we we are facing i have i really you know, uh, medically, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't feeling well at some point. And through mm. that, I discovered like the power of songs and, you know, yeah. praising and mm. worshiping God. And I've really been tapping into that. And, you know, when I, I finished one of those personal sessions with me <laughs> and God, I can't really yeah. fully rejuvenated, you know, yeah. and so I think that keeps me going. And then, you know, there are countless stories of myself growing up, people that decided to sacrifice, you know, mm. for me, yeah. uh, that I think of, you know, because to whom much is given, much is expected, expected because yeah. you were able to pass the baton when you yourself have been, have seen, you know, the power of when, uh, mm. how people sacrifice. You know, a good example is I shared the nice story of me and my mom joining my auntie yeah. at the USD campus. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had a group of about eight teachers. Basically, they were teachers. My mom taught like 19 years in Ghana Education Center. Mm-hmm. So after school, we were always doing extra classes for mm-hmm. as long as I can remember. And I remember the fees getting so high, so much that my mom was like, I can't afford all of that. And the teachers just decided to give us discounts or free, Mm. you know, for those courses. I think about that. What makes a teacher decide that even though I can charge this girl a full price, at that point decide to do it for free for her. And then they tell the girl not to tell her friends because that would be an issue. (laughs) So I think of all of that and I think that helps me thrive and keep going at what I do. That's that's very powerful and amazing. So how do you approach learning new stuff? Oh, that's a great thing. So um, I share a conversation that was born between my dad and I Mm. uh, when I was struggling with uh, probability. Mm. I believe it was last year in second year at the University of Ghana, and I'd really gotten to a point where I was like, I'll quit this, because I I always (laughs) thought I was smart, but what is this course? (laughs) Uh. I 
I just don't care for, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> at this point. And my dad said something very profound. He was like, ah, why are you giving up at this point? Why, what is the reason? I'm like, it is too difficult. Mm. So my dad was like, don't you know that's when you come to a point where you think it's difficult? That is when you are discovering something new. It means you've reached the point where all that you know mm. is not working. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So when you get to that point, it means learning has begun. I thought that was very powerful. And it, <laughs> it helped me. It helped me realize that because I was stuck, it didn't mean that there was anything. It was just because, you know, you truly are foreign into a new level of learning, you know. So mm-hmm. when you, I just want to share that when you get to that place when you are learning, you know, when you start the whatever you think is learning, that is not really learning when it's easy. But when you get to the point where you need to discipline yourself mm-hmm. to really understand the concept that you are learning, that's yeah. actually when learning is taking place. Mm-hmm. And for me, I already shared that I'm very visual. If I can visualize it, if someone can really describe it well to me, I'm going to get it. And if I can write it out and try to paraphrase what's been given to me, mm-hmm. you know, like in my own words, not how they put it, but how will I put it? That's also powerful. And then when you want to teach, when you start teaching somebody else what paraphrase you see that as you are preparing to teach that person you realize that i don't even know how i'm going to explain this aspect to the person mm. but sometimes you explain to them and then they are giving you the feedback that they they understand that you're explaining but somehow they are not getting and that will force you to think through how else you should present the thing to the person yeah. so yeah. it's you first of all making the decision that this is challenging i'm going to learn it because it is really a new level of learning that you've reached and number two thinking of how do you assimilate things fast just Mm -hmm. because your friend i don't know has a different method of learning doesn't mean that should be your approach you know Mm. i know people used to learn and they'll put their legs in water cold water and stuff (laughs) so that they can't sleep sleep the whole night you know if that is the method for Mm. them that's fine you know (laughs) so it doesn't mean that you should just go and do something because your friend is doing it yeah talk yourself and know how do you process information Mm. better Mm. and then Whatever it is you are trying to learn, put it in that form. And then when you after you finish explaining or getting it yourself, try and teach somebody else. You know, yeah. a lot of people they don't like sharing what they know with others, you mm-hmm. know, because mm-hmm. sometimes it comes across like they want to be the custodian of the, oh, the knowledge. Yeah. And they want to be first place and stuff like that. But mm. you know, it works to so much extent because if you are not sharing, honestly, you probably think you know, but you know, chances are that you don't actually know what you think you know. But when you are teaching people, it, it becomes multiplicative, you know. One person will give you feedback on how to deliver it, and before long you you've really become an expert of what it is that you are trying to master. Yeah. I I believe strongly in knowledge sharing and impacting. So it's one of the things that is very dear to me and close to my heart that I intend to do a lot of future things, you know, specifically in, in, in knowledge sharing. Let's talk about Africa. What's your big picture for Africa? Already, I know you're doing a lot, a lot, you know, to promote technology in Africa. So I wouldn't even go there because women who code, women, you know, uh, women like coders who travel and all those things, great impact. 
but what's your big picture for Africa? I think, you know, today at Coders Who Travel, we were hosted by Soronko Academy, mm -hmm. and um, we had a doctor called uh, Isaac Arthur Newman come and talk about the circulatory and respiratory systems. And before he came, I picked that idea from, I, was, I think Bill Gates wrote a book about, let me see, the nervous system. Mm -hmm. Something about how he modeled the IT world to be a nervous system, the way the brain is a nervous system. And I was like, I didn't even read much of it yet. I plan to complete it. But the idea hits me that pretty much everything that technology models, it's nothing new. It usually finds an organism or something and yeah. it models it after with yeah. systems. So today I thought that his lecture was very insightful. One profound thing that he said is the human being who lives in Africa and the human being who lives in the United States, they are circulatory and respiratory systems. It functions the same. Mm. The way the heart beats in Africa is the same way the heart beats in A. So that we don't have any excuse. Yeah. We may, our situation and our culture may be different, but the human potential is the same. Uh, when I was on my journey with women who could, initially I was really fighting for the headquarters to recognize that my network had unique challenges, mm -hmm. right? And it should be different, but they were rigid, okay? They were firm is more a positive way to put it, that Accra had to go by the rules. And so what I had to do is I cared about the project. I'd already invested my own about 10,000 plus in it. I wasn't going to let that project go. Yeah. So I did coders who travel. But then when I think about it again, why is it easy for, let's say, someone in the U.S. to, let's say, take it upon them, a successful man or woman, to take it upon themselves that for, let's say, about two months, mm. you guys should meet, younger group of women should meet, and I'll pay for the lunch if mm. the women there cannot afford it. Afford why it, does yeah. it have to come from outside always? Yeah. Um, you know, why, why does it always have to be foreigners who want to uh, volunteer, you know? And then we do that. And then later, if people say they want to come and bring us aid, we also say that we don't want the aid, you know? <laughs> but but when, when we are called to hold the same seat on the same table, right, mm. to contribute the same quota, then we retreat. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, our vision, my vision for Africa, we, we definitely have to pursue unity, but we have to recognize that each country in Africa is distinct and Tanias cannot speak so much for Nigerians and vice versa and Kenyans cannot speak so much from you know, South Africans and all that. Mm. But there has to be that also being your sister's keeper and my brother's keeper in mm -hmm. Africa mm -hmm. a lot. You know, that it's okay if you are more successful and you want to help younger group of women. Volunteering should be considered, you know, if you can give out, teach a group of people how to interview, like mm -hmm. today I shared. Yeah. You might not have given them money, but spending, let's say, the two hours with that young woman or young man will help that person probably get a job somewhere. So we want aid, we don't want aid, debatable. But we also need to function because we are human beings. And like that doctor said, 
our heartbeats are the same function like it beats here. We can no longer keep giving excuses for why, you know, people always show up late to functions like one hour later, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I, I've even attended events here, like events huh. I don't want to mingle out. <laughs> and me, I drove from, let's say, Washington, D.C., New York hmm. to be on time. And hmm. I will show up and people are, are not there on, yeah, time. on time. You are living in New York. it's like those things we can't keep giving excuses to them we we need to work on those of course it doesn't mean that we are not understanding i don't want we've already touched on some unique challenges Mm -hmm. like internet Mm -hmm. access and commuting distances and also people work with budgets that are much slimmer yeah than you know budgets that people have here yeah, yeah. but in our own small way there are things that we can do to help you know uplift the younger ones that are coming those who are already matured and doing well choose to make it an obligation to to watch out and uplift those who are coming so that they are the future and if not it, we don't mean to replace them but they have an obligation to help shape mm. our destinies by offering us their experiences because they have a whole plethora of experiences that the young people can leverage you know Mm. so they don't make the same mistake because i don't know if you've heard that history tends to really repeat Repeat itself itself. if you don't study it well yeah that's amazing so before we're moving to uh mystery sections and your opinion on you know topics i want to ask um two more questions centered on africa uh, the first one would be which African startup or tech firm would you invest in and why? And if you can follow that up with uh, any African influencer you follow. Oh, great question. So for me, um, I'll have to think about this one. Don't <laughs> worry. If, if, if you don't have any, you know, we can just move on. But it's, it's just something I want to know. Maybe you have an eye on some startup or some tech influencer that... You you're just interested in, but if none comes to mind, we can we can move on. No, I would say I would have loved to have studied, but recently I was in Ghana and also I visited two places: Soronko Academy, where we hosted the event today, mm-hmm. Kumase High, and okay. also in the past I've worked with Impact Hub and Workshed. Mm. So the two Impact Hub and Workshed, I think, are both co-working spaces, yeah. and I think they they deserve shout-outs for what they are doing. You know, make sure that people who want to start take a shot in technology can have co-working spaces in our climate. There's also uh, these two people, uh, I think Regina Ejari. She's actually married now, so she's Regina Honu, I should say. I've been really impressed because, you know, when I first reached out during the Women Who Code, I thought that this would resonate with a lot of up-and-coming women, you know, in Ghana. But it actually did not really play out that way. I had to connect with what I now call ordinary people who became extraordinary because... I mentioned and I gave them pep talk. But it feels as if on the landscape, it was very competitive. Mm. You know, but Regina was a bright light because she was like, I mean, I may not be able to give you money or anything, but I can share my lessons with you. And if you guys want space, you can come and, you know, start it out here, you know, and stuff. That helps a lot. So mm. I thought she really stood out, at least on the young up and coming 
you know, everybody's trying to do something in women and code and girls yeah. and code. Yeah. I want to give a shout out to her because uh, she, she really stood out. And then Kumasi Hi, Georgia Pia, they hosted us for an event and uh, he said an amazing thing. First of all, the place was always bustling and teeming with young and bright folks. Mm. Uh and he said something I thought was profound. He was like, when you are starting up, some people say business plans, business plans. But I don't think we would have gotten to where we were if we had made a business plan because we yeah. didn't have any pestle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was bawling after that. I was like, he's a real entrepreneur. Yeah. Who did this? <laughs> With a check from a, you know, a family member or anything mm-hmm. like that. you mm-hmm. know. And mm-hmm. so I just want to give shout out Kumasi High, you know, Soronko Academy, you know, Impact Hub in the past have been wonderful and workshed. And the reason why I've been selective, you know, it's very easy to become a fan of people on in this world, in, in this day and age, social yeah. media, right? Yeah. But I'm realizing that sometimes when you actually visit them in person, mm-hmm. it doesn't live up to the hype. Yeah. You know, so that's why I had to take time to think about it. Oh, okay. But at least these people have checked out their places and um I'm I'm talking from my relationship with them. So that might be a bit but they are the ones that I'll give a shout out to. Awesome. We've got to the point on the podcast where we call we call the mystery fun question. We pretty much ask you a random question based on the set of numbers we have. So today for you if you <laughs> You have to choose between 1 and 16. These numbers have associated questions that I will ask you depending on the number you choose. So pick a number and tell us why you're picking that number. Hmm. See, I was going to say 17. <laughs> Unfortunately, seven, today seven, 17 seven. is not on the list. I like, 10. I, I like 10 and I like 7, so I usually go with 17. Oh, okay. I see. Unfortunately, we are up to 16. Maybe maybe after this episode, <laughs> so I would add, add one to I'll it. So you do 10. I'll do 7. 7? I'll do 7. Why? So I think, you know, maybe my Christian background is a perfect number. Yeah, perfect number. <laughs> Coincidentally, my number is also 7. Just oh, so you know good. <laughs> okay. So, and the question for number 7 is, what is something you think everyone should do at least once in their lives? Travel. Travel. Travel travel to somewhere new that you've never been. Mm. You know, experience the culture, eat eat their food. You know, try to go somewhere you can speak their language like English. But if you can work a little bit on Mm. picking up a little things, how to greet in their language. Language is powerful. You know, like people really feel special when you start thinking and speaking in their language. And so uh, I'll, I'll pick travel. It brings exposure and uh, it makes you, it challenges, you know, what you've always known mm. before and it forces you to leave your comfort zone. And uh, that's mm. what I would say, travel. Travel and see. Travel and see. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that as the, as the favorite or very profound African saying goes, travel and see. On your yeah. opinion, and this, these are debatable topics that we want to <clears throat> seek your opinion on. And since I'm interested in having you on the monthly discussion on AI, I want to ask you this question again. I think Equia answered this question. And coincidentally, I want to ask you the same thing because I want to have you guys with the other guests on the podcast discuss this. So 
We want to know your opinion. Now, can artificial intelligence replace teachers at schools, doctors in hospitals, and housewives at home? What's your take on that? I would say no. And why is I that? I think they, they And then the short answer is no, because I believe that we discover things and that there's nothing new under the sun, right? So we discover, we rediscover stuff. Now, everything that the sciences, they do, is basically they discover things. And this AI stuff, I've attended flagship conferences like SAS. They, by the way, they throw impeccable conferences. Yeah. And they are not sponsoring me or anything. I'm just saying yeah. it because as feedback. And yeah. they've had these discussions, you know. And the answer really is no, because... Um, and, and I think maybe even most programmers will really understand it. That when you are working with a computer, the computer is not smart. It relies on the individual mm. who is creating it to be smart. And then the computer is able to do it faster than humans can do it. And it can do sophisticated things, but everything has to be told. You see what I'm saying? Now with AI, they're trying to use a lot of mining, historical data and patterns to predict the situation. And so, you know, it's very impressive the stuff they are doing. I was I saw someone's LinkedIn post that they were at the airport and that a robot was calling out their names. You know, mm. <laughs> it's mm. cool and it's different, but that's robots. It's been told everything it's supposed to say. Now, when something outside of that happens, that robot, unlike a human being, can quickly uh, perhaps decide this is what I should do or maybe I should go and ask my manager or I should create a mastermind to solve this problem. You know, so I've always been on the side of human, you know, being the smartest. And that's why I just believe that it can fully replace them. It can be supported that can ease their repetitive tasks and stuff that drains, you know, because some of these, I have friends who are medical doctors and lawyers, they work for very long hours, particularly like the doctors and nurses, yeah. you know, and some of the aspects of their roles, maybe they are repetitive, you know, like maybe taking the intake information of patients, you know, so if you have 100 patients, I guess in your practice in a month, you have to go through the same thing. So those things, the AI people, the AI stuff can be replacing. But what if your patients came in that they broke down and really needed like a hug and someone just listened to them and really connect them as a human being and just know that they care? Sometimes that that's even before the medication. Or- yeah. You know? yeah. So so those things is it will be hard for computers to pick up. You know, maybe it's hard for us to imagine. Maybe our children's children, <laughs> they will get there. But for me, not in this lifetime. We well, human beings, we are created in God's image and we are really, really, really smart. And, you know, there's a lot of hype about AI now, but uh, it's, it's, it's been discovered in the, you know, statisticians particularly have been using concepts of machine learning and AI for a very long time in their work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's now that, you know, computer science people and the AI industry, they're able to really hype up with buzzwords more than mathematicians and statisticians mm. do. Yeah. And so now we are hearing a lot about it, but it, these are not new concepts. You yeah. know, it's, it's always been there in those disciplines. Yeah. Some people will say AI is just glorified statistics or better still statistics on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But um, I, I, I don't see us 
the computers completely replace us. It it will always it's supposed to make our lives convenient. Is how I see it. You know, mm. so that's that's the side of how that I am. Amazing. So before we let you go, what would your advice be for someone aspiring to come into technology? Um, I would say it's hard work. You know, you need to, because some people, they think it's fancy and they just want to get it. And then when they get in and they realize the shock of, let's say, the learning curve and stuff like that, they start giving up, you mm. know. So understand that it's hard work, right? Yeah. And then have that mindset that because you're a human being, when you get to that point where you cannot you think you are giving up, that's actually the boundary you've reached to exploring more and then realizing that you can have support. So if you get to that point and let's say you are taking a lecture and this is something I wish I knew back in uh, Legon way, we, we had a mm. classmate who was so smart. His name was, I think, Ralph. And I, I, I mean, I was always seeing the guy in my hostel. I wasn't doing much and every now and then I'll see people following him around going to learn. I was at my dinner <laughs> and I kept attending my lectures until, you know, second year when I had a, a, a hardcore moment. Mm. But he was someone who could have provided support because yeah. what I didn't get from my lectures, that guy got. And mm. so being able to identify who your support network is yeah. so that when you reach, you reach your limits, you can go and reach out to people who know. Yeah. You know, and don't be shy, mm. you know, when you want to, you you have an issue, you know, you just need to identify the right people. So you don't want to create the, the, the impression that you're always telling your problems with to everyone. You know, nobody wants that. So that as soon as you walk through the door, they are like, oh, my God, we are now going to have, you know, therapy sessions. That's yeah. why there are therapists. And <laughs> I know particularly in Africa, people don't champion for that. But I believe in it, you know. There are people who can listen to all your heart troubles and your meltdowns and mm. your crying and they mm. won't judge you. They are paid to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you can, you know, release whatever tension or stress that you mm. want. Yeah. But after you do that, identify people who can actually help you take you to the next level, you know, mm. of whatever it is that you want to learn. And then don't be shy, you know, keep reaching out to them, you know. You'll be amazed the kind of help that you get when you ask. If you yeah. just ask people, if you just ask the right people, I should say. And then uh, just know that believe in yourself, like really believe in yourself, mm. that you are your best resource, that you are your best champion, that you are your your best encourager, right? Yeah. You have to believe in that. You have to believe in that. And when you believe in that, people will start believing in what you do. And, you know, everything should, should, should work out from there. And above all, keep God first. You mm. know, I am a Christian. And so I I want to share that, you know, everything. There's a, one verse says that, you know, it is he himself who is working in us, creating the desire to do the work that pleases him. Mm. I really like that verse, you know, because people take their desires for granted sometimes or ignore them or tell themselves, I have to wait yeah. for the right time, time. you yeah. know, and then they'll go and ask someone for their opinion. Then they'll, they'll factor all of that mm. and then they won't do what is coming into their heart, you know, mm. but I believe that those desires, as long as you are in alignment with God, he creates them, you know, and then they are good desires and, uh, you should go for them. Wow. Powerful message there. If you have, do you have any tools 
technology or resources you want to share with people who are coming into technology? Any of the favorite ones you use yourself or you want to share? Uh, so, you know, Stack Overflow is mm-hmm. really good. Uh, but uh, I go to SaaS. You know, because I use SaaS a lot, okay. and they have technical. They have technical. I would say for encyclopedias, more or mm, less, on everything mm. that you need to look, yeah. know about that language. I also, like I said, I like to hear lectures and people. So they have, you know, DC SaaS users group. Mm. I try to attend their quarterly, mm. and you know, an expert from SaaS will come and give you a new update on mm, what is happening, happening yeah. you know, in Vogue. Uh, and then I, you know, again, knowing my support network, if I have a dear friend called Christina, who's also on the board for Coders Who Travel, mm. uh, she knows a lot of SaaS when it comes to, let's say, processing healthcare claims. Mm. And so I remember one time at Deloitte, I was struggling with some understanding, you know, the processing or something. And I didn't really want to tell my team because it was very competitive you know so I reached out to her visited her house and you know after three hours discussion I got it so Mm. being proactive you know with my friends who I know know the specialized information Mm. is really a big resource but um you always want to google and see what's out there you know first before Mm. you approach people so you don't go and ask, you know, basic, basic questions. Yeah. But don't spend too, spend too much Googling. Mm. And I don't, you know, because it, it, it helps no one. Yeah. Spending two days yeah. Googling and getting nowhere when you could have Just had ask. a 30 yeah. minute, minutes phone call to understand the thing, uh, you know, saves everyone. And so those are the resources. And for SAS, there's a specific site called Lex Janssen. It's an amazing resource. Mm. The people that really contribute, they really know SaaS. So uh, I really use that a lot. And then books, you know, I love reading books. Uh, you know, learning SaaS by example, my little SaaS book, and a host of other SaaS books that I have, mm. you know. And then, you know, um, let's say then my entrepreneurial journey, I attend, you know, conferences and listen to different kinds of people. Yeah. You know, some are millionaires, others are <laughs> regular people, you know, <laughs> but hearing different perspectives brings ideas. And then I'm, I, at some point I was ordering so many books from Amazon that my mm. mother was thinking <laughs> that maybe I had put my credit card on Uto. Yeah. When she found out that it was deliberate, <laughs> she was in shock. But <laughs> that's the only way to get knowledge, knowledge yeah. that you don't have. Yeah. And fast track the process. Yeah. You need to invest in your knowledge. You do. Yeah. Yeah. So on there to pass it on, if you are, who do you think or who would you want to know their journey that you want me to interview next? So I can put on my list. If you can get Regina Honu in okay. Ghana, that would be great. Those are the guys I gave you a shout out. Mm. Will Senyo was amazing when... I had lunch with him. He had really had me laughing and he was very knowledgeable. George Apia of Kumasi Hive is also a good person to talk to. Uh, so those those three come to mind. Actually, mm. there's also Larissa, but she's expecting, so mm. we'll have to hold on. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole project. Wow. But, so I won't release her full day, but still, she, she's she, in a place to do that. Definitely. 
at least you've given uh, you've given us enough names we can reach out to on subsequent yeah. episodes of the show. Thank you very much, Ifia, for sharing your journey, sharing your experiences, you know, with us. We believe that it's going to make a strong impact in the lives of others that are coming. You are very welcome, and, and thank you for having me. Well, listeners, thank you for listening to episode 7 of the Journey series. We have been talking with Ifia Uusu Fofie. She is the president and executive director for Coders Who Travel, and she graced that today with intriguing insights and um, exciting parts she's taking and don't forget that you can have this podcast downloaded listening and subscribe we are on itunes google spotify tune in and our website podcast.sajourney.me and don't forget that you can always send me a feedback at hello at sajourney.me and in closing today something that if you are ties into from an african proverb you always learn a lot more when you lose than when you win So remember that when the going gets tough, when you feel like you've tried everything you have tried and you're not getting anywhere, that is when the actual learning begins. So until next Friday, this is Control Escape.